the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Oh, Tyson, this is like the old days when we used to record them one episode at a time. Lately, we've been doing batching them on a Thursday, but we had such late-breaking news and such an important bulletin that we had to bring to our Maximum Lawyer members that we decided to get our guest for today on the show as quickly as we could. His name is Ryan McKean. You all know him, love him, and Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jim, for that introduction, and thank you, Tyson, for having me on. Listen, I'm, I couldn't be more excited to have you on. This is amazing. I'm going to let you tell people why we're having you on, because I, I don't even want to be the one to say it. I want you to be able to say it, and then we, we're going to ask you about it. So you tell us about, and I guess if you, for people that don't know you, maybe say who you are and what you do and all that, but then tell people why the specific reason why we're having you on here. Okay. I, I'm, I'm Ryan McKean. I'm a CEO and attorney of Connecticut Trial Firm, a, a, a firm that I co-founded uh, here in Hartford, Connecticut. And the reason I'm on is we recently took a $100 million jury verdict on uh, behalf of an incredibly worthy client on a case that we fought for five years. All right, Ryan. So as with so many things, you've documented your journey and you were kind enough to share a goal that you and your partner, Andrew, had set a while back. Do you want to talk a little bit and go, go back in time a little bit to before you even signed up this client and sort of what was the goal we sat down at a, at a local bar restaurant and we had our traction like vision. I think they call it the VTO organizer. You can download from their site. And we we're like, well, what is going to be our big, hairy, audacious goal? And we we're like, well, what, you know, it could be a lot of different things. But we set the goal that day, that March day, as a $10 million jury verdict. And like we had no business setting that as a goal. Like I may as well have been like, I want to play in the NBA for the Celtics or something because like we didn't have a case of that value. We had never returned a jury verdict of a hundred thousand, let alone a million or 10 million. And we put that out into the universe as to our 10-year goal. We want a $10 million jury verdict. And we made it clear we didn't want a settlement. We wanted to take a verdict in excess of that amount because if we did it, we knew we would have to get so much right along the way uh, that we will have built the business that we wanted to have built. I want you to take us to the day after you set the goal, right? So you set the BHAG 
And I wonder, did any any doubt creep in your mind? Like, hey, we're not going to be able to accomplish this. We set this way too high. Talk us about the mindset part of it. See, I think I'm really a, like a simple bubba on this. And it, it, the doubt was not there. Like, it was like, this will happen. And I don't think like there was, there was always a belief that it would happen. And, but there was an acknowledgement that we needed to do a lot of work for that to happen. Like we needed to raise our trial skills to the level that could achieve that. And so we invested significantly in going to plaintiff's workshops throughout the country for many years and learning the best that we could to present the case. We also, you know, at the time it was just Andrew and I, and I had one part-time employee who was nine hours a week. We needed paralegals. We needed structure. Believe it or not, we had we weren't even on with FileVine. Like we needed to organize our operational systems and tech stack all for this one goal. And so we started out uh, doing those things. Like we were like, okay, let's hire somebody more part-time. And we brought on like somebody 20 hours a week. We signed up with FileVine. We started paring down our cases from general litigation to only taking personal injury cases. And we're like, look, this is who we are. We told the market, like, we want to try cases. And so all of those sort of initial decisions stemmed from that bigger goal. And Ryan, I know that you and Andrew also sort of did some structural work inside the firm to separate out your pre-litigation cases from your litigation cases. How did that decision help set up your firm for success in this case? Yeah, we realized that bizarrely, like we were spending so much individual time on cases that were urgent and cases that were not necessarily the most important cases. So weirdly, we'd get a big case and it would kind of get backburnered because, hey, we've got a deposition in this motor vehicle case, or we've got a pleading that's due or whatever it is. And so what we decided to do was isolate really critical cases in our firm. And we isolated them with Andrew, as he's the one who really wanted to litigate these and and do these things. So I ended up getting like pre-litigation. I got intake. I got firm operations. I got marketing. I had all of this stuff because we knew that the most important thing we could do was move big files. And we tried to isolate that for as long as possible and in fact did for years. And that really led to different departments in our firm that led to a linear workflow. And we just wanted to protect that time because look, Andrew had to take like 40 depositions in that case. You can't do that if you're trying to handle intakes. I find the logistical side of this just honestly fascinating. It's just as fascinating, if not more fascinating than the actual trial part of this. So I kind of want to dig into that part of it. And the case comes in, right? I'm not sure how it comes in, but it comes into you all. And there could have been, and and I'm not sure if it is, but I know that some attorneys will say, well, we can't manage this case because we don't have the funding to pursue a case like this. We've got to co-counsel with someone else. We got to refer it out. Was there any point where you had to make that decision? And then also, because I don't, my guess is probably not because you all were more established, but talk about that part of it. And then also talk about the funding of the case as well. See, actually we were not established. Like I think my firm, I think probably combined, Andrew and I, even though we had separate books, were probably grossing like $250,000 gross. Like it just, there was not a lot of money, but we believed that we could handle this case. And, you know, when I talked to my client, Mikey Cruz, when I met him at the hospital and I said like, look, we are playing all in for you. Like, and I meant it. And I, and even at trial, I said, look, I 
you know, I talked to him and he's like, you, you fulfilled your promise to me that day. And it was like, this is a thing where I don't care if I have to beg, borrow or steal, like we're going to make this thing go because it's that important. We realized the financial component early on and that prompted us to sign up with Advocate Capital at the time. So we went out and we applied to them. We met them through John Fisher's thing and you know, we got ourselves like an initial line for case expenses of like, I think it was like 60 or 70,000, like pretty small. But that is what enabled us to start engaging top level experts early on. Because the way we used to do it, Tyson, would be like, oh, okay, we had this thing come in. Great. Now we have money for an expert to put on another case. And when you're prosecuting something really big, that is not an ideal outcome for for any of you because the sooner you get experts in the sooner you get and and, and also we 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 made a commitment we said we're going to get the best experts in the country on any specific thing that we're going to use in this case and we had the funding to write those checks we ended up with like spending 300 i think the bills up to like three hundred and ten thousand dollars in expenses on this case over five years a lot of money ryan i think as we dive into the case itself maybe it'd be helpful for our listeners if you could give sort of a brief overview a high level view of the facts of the case so what happens is a pallet of um, lights from philips signify the philips lighting corporation they get shipped out to a warehouse in hartford the warehouse is like an electrical distributor warehouse and the safety rule here is that the lamps, ha- the lights have to be affixed to the pallet in some way. They have to be banded or they have to be stretch wrapped to the pallet. Philips does not stretch wrap these ramps, does not stretch wrap these lights to the pallet. And they actually, they get these things from China and they have these, in China, they don't have pallets and they have these like cheap slip sheets. Okay. And the ice has a coefficient of friction of zero. These have a coefficient of friction of 0.1, just slightly less than ice. It's like this cheap plastic. And so the Phillips just takes this in a warehouse in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, and puts it on a cheap pallet. And they ship it out to Rexel Warehouse in Hartford, where our client works. And Rexel puts it up on a rack about 20 feet high. And then in an adjacent aisle, what happens is a temporary worker from another company goes to lift a pallet up and it makes a little bit of contact with the pallet there. And then it causes it to tip 30, um, the, the lamps, all 1300 pounds of them fall on our client in the adjacent aisle, paralyzing him. And, um, he's paraplegic. So he has no sensation or use of body from the belly button down. So can't toilet, can't just no function below the belly button at, at all. And obviously that causes a whole host of harm to him. That's terrible. Um, I mean, it's it's really sad, and I'm glad you're able to to do a lot for the client. It's just it's just a terrible thing for him to go through. Talk about that part of it, though. Maybe the emotions of not just of of managing your client's emotions, because I mean, they by the time he got to you all, I mean, he was in really bad shape. So, talk about managing those emotions, but then also managing those emotions inside the firm, because sometimes you have to treat this clinically, or not sometimes, usually you've got to treat this clinically because you've got to take emotion out of it and approach these from a clinical standpoint so you can best serve your clients. So, talk about that part of it. Yeah. Um, when we first met him, and, and, and this is something we learned is common with paralysis victims, he was in denial. He believed that he would walk again. And in fact, they sort of allow that hope to exist. And they didn't tell him up till about a year later that he wouldn't walk. And so when we met him in a hospital bed, he was like, I'm going to be back to work in two weeks. 
Okay. And, and you're like, we knew that for what it was at the time, but you're just like, you're like, Hey, I'm with you. And you know, if you, you're going to be back, you, you know, uh, okay. Like you just, you just let that be. Cause again, you, life is weird. You don't know. I actually think, uh, you know, we worked on this case so hard and we worked so closely for them for five years. I mean, they call me, me familia, and they tell me I have a Puerto Rican family. And so we really wanted to understand what they went through. And that meant time going to their house. That meant time having dinner or having lunch at their lunch table and sitting with them and talking sports with them and, you know, playing Madden with like all all of these things sort of they happen. And because we wanted as advocates to really be able to convey credibly what they had experienced and to know the nuances of paralysis, which is, I don't think, anything that any of us understood prior to working on this case. Running your own practice can be scary, whether you're worried about where the next case will come from, feeling like you're losing control over your growing firm, or frustrated from being out of touch with everyone working under your license. The stress can be overwhelming. We will show you how to turn that fear into a driving force of clarity, focus, stability, and confidence that eliminates the roller coaster of guilt-ridden second-guessing and mistake-making to get you off that hamster wheel for good. Maximum Lawyer and Minimum Time is a step-by-step playbook that shows you how to identify what your firm needs and how to proactively get it at every stage of the game so you are prepped and excited for the inevitable growth that will follow. Name the lifestyle that you want, and we'll show you how to become a Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. Find out more by going to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash course. You're listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Our guest today, Ryan McKean, he and his partner, Andrew, just got a big verdict on behalf of their client. And I'm wondering, I always just want to think about, like, as you approach trial, as you got closer and the settlement demands going back and forth, was, was this a case that the other side could have settled for a whole lot cheaper than the verdict? Yes. Let me sort of back up because the last... Uh, I would say six months have been critical. When we sat down and we did our quarter three rocks, we decided that the rock was going to be this case for the whole firm. And quarter two and quarter three, that was our rock. Was We're going to get this case resolved uh, one way or another. We had done about, I think it was, I think we ended up doing about eight focus groups on this. We hired a retired judge to actually vet this case and go through and we'd make legal arguments, factual arguments, and and tell me this, tell me this, tell me how this plays out, tell me what you think, tell me what you think for valuation. And so we had a really good idea in our heads as to where this case should have been valued. And there's no right number in a case like this, but the gross insurance between there's actually two different parties or actually three different parties, but the gross insurance was $26 million. And Philip Signify had $20 million of it. And we drew a line in the sand and we said, you are going to pay every penny of available insurance to this man, or we are going to take a verdict. Okay. And we had initially issued an initial demand of $60 million just to get things started because they said we won't mediate this case until you until you have a demand and so we said 60 million that did prompt a mediation we knew the mediation was going to fail we knew they weren't taking this seriously but we had to have the mediation for one reason and one reason only because we wanted to keep our trial date and we knew if we went into court for the trial management conference the judge was going to say to us you guys haven't mediated this get out of here and come back in six months so we knew they weren't going to ever take it seriously at mediation between all the parties, they offered us a grand total of $3 million. 
And we said, we're not even moving off our 60 until you can come up over 10 because we have nothing to talk about here. And 10 not going to get this done. And they wouldn't move. Uh, so the two-day mediation, we had this mediator come in from Boston. That blew up, which was fine by us. And um, we then filed an offer of compromise for $26 million, the global amounts of the policies against the parties. And from Phillips and their response, they filed an offer of compromise for $1.5 million. That was the only offer that we ever had from them. So we ended up settling out with two other parties in this case, right before opening statements for $8 million. So our guy had some, their guy had some money and Phillips was the only remaining defendant. It's uh, incredible. And I, this is, I just love hearing all of this, these stories, these war stories, these are really good. So you get past mediation, it doesn't work out. You're completely fine with it. You're approaching the, the trial date. Walk us through the mindset, the preparations, both business side, both litigation side. Talk us about that uh, that part of it. We knew this case was massive and we knew the, the amount of work was massive. And so we decided really prepping this case for trial in April and or end of March. And we'd have weekly meetings and it was like, this needs to be done. This needs to be done. Let's get out ahead of things because we know we're going to get jammed up. We know defense lawyers are going to pull all sorts of things. There's going to be new depots that's got to be taken. There's going to be, you know, one of our experts died. We have to go get another economist. Like, like we're like, why isn't our expert responding to emails? Oh, he's dead. <laughs> um, so, so, but these are the kinds of things that happen. And we decided to really, really, really start working on them. We, we sort of ditched and we knew that we were going to have to run hot to get where we needed. It was like, we're going to put the throttle on the gas on this and we're going to take some pressures off other places. We got our finances in order. We got some projections in order. We didn't take draws. We, you know, we didn't probably spent, you know, we, we sacrificed really, I mean, personally at the end of it, but, but to push through and to get the result that we needed to do because it was so like, this was our moment and we knew it and we took our shot. And I think, I think it, for us, it was just having the confidence and drawing those lines and saying like, we are going to be unyielding here. We believe in our case, we've done our work and we're going to kick your ass. <laughs> like, and they just didn't take us seriously. Ryan, I know you put a lot of thought and energy into firm culture. I'm just wondering, what was the experience like and how has it affected your team to all work together on one goal? I would think it'd be galvanizing. It is definitely galvanizing. I mean, people are really proud of the firm and of the result. And people are like, oh my gosh, you work at this firm because it's like front page of the paper. And like, it's recognition and validation in ways that there's a lot of pride. And our whole team knew these clients intimately and, and, and knew them personally. And so there's, there's just, there's relief because I think the biggest burden, the biggest challenge was always like, I, I couldn't live with a result that he wasn't taking care of. <laughs> like that he was not taken care of. And to know that he set up, like these people's lives are, are, are changed and made infinitely better because of the work that went on in our firm. And it, it just means everything to our team. I love that. And Jim, I'm glad you asked about the, the culture question because, I mean, Ryan, you are like the, the culture warrior. It's awesome. It's really good. I don't think we need to dig into the details of the actual trial. You're going to tell that story probably hundreds of times. But I want to talk about the moment you stand up the, the you know the judge asks for everyone to rise. I'm assuming that's how you do it in Connecticut, like they mm -hmm. do pretty much everywhere else. Yeah. Walk us through that moment, man, because it's got to be. You've probably relived that a bunch now. So talk, walk us through it. Either the verdict or the opening of the trial. 
the verdict. I'm talking about oh. the verdict part of it. Oh man. You know, like aside from like, you know, marriage, birth of my kids, like this is, this is like one of the moments in life. Like this, this is one of the defining uh, things. Like, you know, you think like if I could go back to any days in my life, like this would make the cut in the top four. And, you know, we, we went in and um, the jury comes in and they got their verdict. You know, we, we knew, we, I thought it was going to go well for us because they had asked to see our life care plan which meant on the jury interrogatories that they got through the liability portion and then they're on to damages, which was a good thing. And I just had my remarkable out there and they start, you know, first of all, the judge, the judge afterwards said, you had to love my poker face because the judge gets the verdict first. And he's just like, his face is not reacting at all. And so he gets the verdict and he starts writing. And I was like, oh, he's writing a lot of what appeared to be zeros to me. Like, and I'm like, oh, this, this, this is good, right? And so then he gets the verdict and he, he hands it off to the clerk and the clerk then asks the four person, you know, is this your, is this your verdict? And the first line came up economics and it went 15 million. I was like, yes. <laughs> and then it was like non-economics. And it was like, they're like, uh, when they come back, $75 million. And I was like, like, like I just, at that point, I just started sobbing. Like I was just in court sobbing. And then, uh, then they're like loss of consortium damages, ten million dollars, and I was like, like I just, I just, it's just such a powerful. It was justice, and um, so they're like up to a hundred million. And then the question is like, how do they apportion amongst the other parties? Uh, because the defendants that we settled were still on the jury verdict form. The jury could assign responsibility, and then they're like, we assign ninety percent to Philip Signify, and I'm like, oh. God, like $90 million. And it, it was just like, I just sobbed. I just, I was just completely just sitting at council table, a complete mess of a human being. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know if we can even add anything to that. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. <laughs> well, let's, let's try to wrap it up a little bit. Talk to us about the fallout, like after. So the emotional fallout and then maybe the publicity fallout. Yeah, I mean the the emotional fallout is uh, is just tremendous. I mean, it, it, like it's probably like what I imagine like a somebody winning the super a football player winning the Super Bowl. Like, there's an element to it of joy, and there's an element to it of like relief. Like, we did it. We did the thing. Like, we hit the goal. Our guy is set. We did what we set out to do. And I don't know that that has like fully hit us. In, in a lot of in a lot of different ways but there is there's elation there's um there's joy there's relief in, in, in a big way and then you know the publicity thing i mean that we also i told anybody who would listen to me that we we're going to hit 100 million and so i've had Brittany, our marketing person for months working on getting a campaign ready getting press ready getting our publicist ready getting this thing rolled out in a big way. So those ducks were in a row. And again, that hit big. And, you know, and that has been so touching on a personal level. Like so many people have reached out and just been like, you know, in high school, like you did this nice thing for me and I'm so happy for your success. And that, that on a very personal level has been so touching. Um, and from colleagues and from a lot of different things. And yeah, there's managing like now it's like, I got to speak here. I got to do this. These fall into the bucket of good problems. And, um, I haven't taken like people are like, hey, you retire, you take a vacation. I'm like, no, it's been it's been grind, grind, grind since this um, because it's it, it is a continuation of the moment. I love it. Well, 
I said this to you before on Twitter, but I'm going to say it to you just face to face. And I'll say it to you again whenever I see you actually in person. But thank you for everything you've done for us. But also thank you for holding your ground because the work that you all did on this case, it helps all of us. It helps every single one of us because it holds them accountable. And so thank you so much. I I cannot thank you enough and, and cannot be prouder of you. Can I just add one thing for this audience? I think it's a, just a lot of value. I know you're short on time, but it's, no, it's, it's, it's that if you're going to do something like this, like you need a team. Like we, we had four lawyers on this team and all of us brought very complementary skill sets to this trial. And, you know, Andrew was, oh my God, the work he did in the, the detail work and all of it, we, we assembled was amazing. Alexa handled the loss of consortium claim as a woman, and that was amazing. I mean, just but but get people with disparate skill sets. We brought in appellate counsel, so you know we talk about team a lot with business, but also if you're doing a litigation project, find those other players for you to complement your skill set. We could not have done this alone. Love it. That's that's good advice. All right, we are going to wrap things up though, Ryan. Um, before I do, I want to remind everyone to join us in the big Facebook group if you've not already. It's a lot of great information being shared there. If you want uh, more high level conversation with people like Ryan McKean, who's in the guild, uh, join us in the guild. Go to maxlawguild.com. And while you're listening to our hips tips, not our hips, our tips and our hacks of the week, actually, uh, yeah, give us a five star review. I totally lost my train of thought. Whatever I said, hips. Uh, please give us a five star review as you're listening to the rest of this podcast. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? I'm going to return back to the start of the show for my hack of the week, and that is the fact that Ryan and Andrew had written down their $10 million goal. There is something about planting your flag, declaring what you want and where you want to get to. You probably don't have any idea how you're going to get there, but there's no substitute for looking off into the future, figuring out where you want to be, writing it down, and then working backwards to build the infrastructure to get you to where you want to be. So I think that's one of the great lessons. There have been many great lessons in today's episode, but I think that's a great lesson for me and for all of us, which is, you know, say what you want to happen. Say out loud the things that you want. Write them down and then figure out how to get there. Because as Marie Forleo says, everything is figure outable. It's very good. Love it, Jimmy. All right, Ryan, do you have a tip or a hack for us? Yeah. There's another Ryan McKean and maybe hopefully dozens of them out there in this audience who are starting out and life is tough and you don't know and you don't probably it feels improbable or out of reach for somebody. But believe in yourself, surround yourself with better people and go for it and figure it out because you can do it. Like there's no magic in what we did. To quote Jim, everything is figure outable. Love it. Good stuff. Ryan, I have in my brain a visualization of what happened in your case. And I think it might have been because you shared a recreation. Do I remember that correctly? Yes. Yep. Okay. So I thought, so I've got a very clear, it's very clear in my brain as to what happened. You didn't even have to tell me. I remember seeing it. And that's where my tip comes in. Um, I, I don't know who you used, um, but I recommend High Impact. Go to highimpact.com. They can give you visuals. They can do recreations. Um, and if you want to talk about who you use, that's, that you can do that as well. But it, it is very, very impactful. Ryan, I think you showed me that months ago, if not a year ago, and I still in my brain, I see it. So um, I recommend using a company if you're trying cases, even, even if you're not, I highly recommend using a company, whether it's high impact or something else. But do you want to talk about who you use? 
Yeah, and I'll send the links if, if Becca wants to put them in the whatever. I'll send the links to Dropbox to these. We use five animations, absolutely critical. Our focus group said these helped us understand what had happened. We used Andrew Finkelstein's outfit, uh, Total Trial Solutions. Absolutely amazing to work with. The defense fought us tooth and nail to get these animations in because they, they knew they were powerful. They deposed our animator and a really strict judge let them in and uh, it made a huge difference. So I'll send those two animations if you're doing personal injury work. Absolutely. Love it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Ryan, thanks for coming on. I know that you're really busy these days. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy for you, buddy. Thank you. See you, brother. Later. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.